Psalm 145, starting at verse 1. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another, and they will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendour of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He is compassionate on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendour of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. If we go over to Ephesians chapter 1 which you'll find on page 827, 827, Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to read the first 14 verses. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and sorry, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. To, praise, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the, time will have reached their, the times will have reached their fulfilment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were all chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Okay, well, let's, uh, give th let's um, come before God in prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, uh, we want to thank you so much that uh, you have... Uh, uh, blessed us so richly uh, through Christ. We thank you, Father God, that you have revealed your unfolding plan, the, the great mystery that has now been fulfilled in Jesus. And uh, we thank you, Father God, that you've revealed it uh, specifically to us. 
Uh, we want to pray now, Lord God, that um, by your spirit that we would be growing in our understanding of your word, of your will, of your purpose for our lives, that uh, we would indeed be people who are, uh, are godly. And we pray these things now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. On January the 29th, 2013, a teenage girl woke up on her 18th birthday. Now, these days, 18th birthdays are a big celebration. At least they are in my street. Um, and uh, in my day, it was 21st, but these days, it's the 18th. They're a big celebration, but not like this particular 18th birthday. You see... This girl's mother had died about 15 years earlier and in her will she had left to her daughter all of her assets. But the inheritance had been locked up by all the accountants and the lawyers in a trust fund until her 18th birthday. So it was a big day. It was a big day for her. It was a big day as the world's media announced that the world knew, had, now had a new billionaire S, Athena Onassis Roussel, the granddaughter of the fabulously wealthy Aristotle Onassis, had entered into her inheritance. How do you think she felt as she climbed out of bed that morning? Well, probably no different, actually, uh, to any other day because... The knowledge of her inheritance had already shaped her life. Uh, educated in Switzerland, she'd finished her French baccalaureate, she had been trained, she had been groomed, knowing that one day the inheritance would be hers. And so her future wealth uh, determined her present identity and uh, it, was, it defined who she was, uh, it defined how she would live, it defined what she would look forward to. Now, friends, if you and I are Christians, then we too have an identity. We too have an inheritance. But I guess if you're like me, uh, you probably find that in the daily grind of life, that it's very easy to forget about our true identity. It's very easy to forget about our true inheritance. Because, to be honest, uh, sometimes the Christian life uh, can be tough. Sometimes um, it can even be a little bit dull on occasions. You ever find that? And I, I, sometimes in our, in our weaker moments, we can wonder if, in reality, we ought to be looking uh, in some other direction for that which would uh, give us meaning and purpose and the fulfil the satisfaction that we crave. Now, it's partly because of this kind of reason that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus and the churches in the surrounding region. You see, uh, it was on Paul's third missionary journey that Paul and, and others uh, took the gospel to that uh, great uh, city of Ephesus with its population of 300,000 people in the region that uh, the Romans called Asia, uh, which we today would tend to call Turkey. 
And uh, Paul and his uh, companions had been there for over two years, uh, three months initially preaching and teaching in the synagogues on a Saturday and then for two years every day Paul taught in the lecture room of Tyrannus and uh, we're told that because Ephesus was such a a great centre that people from all over came to Ephesus, people heard Paul teaching the gospel each day and the gospel spread out from Ephesus as people took it back to the other towns and villages and cities uh, in, uh, in Asia. But after Paul left, it didn't take terribly long for false teachers to move in on that same turf. And uh, from what we know of uh, the ancient world and from what we know reading between the lines in some of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches in that region... Uh, so the, the false teachers were saying things like, uh, it is great uh, that you have a relationship with God through trusting in Jesus, but um, there's actually more. There's actually some newer, higher uh, knowledge and experiences that you can enter into to give you the fullness of the Christian life and we're, we, of course, are the ones who can tell you all about that. Uh, and that's the, the kind of thing that was um, pervading the churches uh, in the uh, latter part of the first century. Now, sometimes a message like that can be tempting. It can be tempting uh, even for us today as we're told, well, you're a Christian, great, but there's a new experience of God. There's a fresh work of the Spirit. There's more that you could actually enter into. And in our... Uh, dull moments or in our, our bad moments, we can be tempted by that. Now, how then does Paul address this? Well, uh, let's open up our Bibles at Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, whilst you're doing that, let me tell you a little bit, bit more a bit about uh, Athena <coughs> Onassis Roussel. Uh, on her 18th birthday, the media went to town telling the whole world what they knew of what she had actually inherited on that day. Uh, would you like me to share some of it with you? <coughs> Probably not, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> uh, this is something of what she owned. Luxury real estate in London, Paris, and of course St. Moritz. Uh, not neglecting New York, she also ended up owning an office building in Manhattan. Uh, a Greek island. Now, I don't know about you, but... I reckon I would settle for that, don't you think? <laughs> a Greek island. Uh, a ship company, of course. Her grandfather was Aristotle Anassis. A Brazilian baby food factory, of all things. Uh, gold bullion. An airline. Everyone needs their own airline. A Japanese electronics company. An Iranian chemical company. And on and on it rolled. They didn't really know how much she owned, but they guessed that it was at least 300 companies. It was just wealth upon wealth upon wealth upon wealth upon wealth. And You know, friends, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul praises God for the incredible wealth which God has showered upon us. And in this passage, the wealth that we have is just, the blessings just cascade one over the other over the other. Have a look and see what he says. He says in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing 
in Christ. Now, what can we tell about these blessings? Well, the first uh, thing that we see there is that Paul speaks in the past tense, doesn't he? He's, uh, he's talking to us about blessings that they already belong to us. It's past tense. Now, secondly, uh, what does he say about these blessings? Well, are they material blessings? And we all have material blessings from God. Each of us will have different kinds of material blessings from God. We won't have the same material blessings from God. But no, he's not talking about material blessings here. He's speaking about blessings which are in the heavenly realms. Now, Athena Onassis Roussel gained her inheritance because of one basic fact, and that was death. Her grandfather, Aristotle, had died. Her mother, Christina, had died. She, too, will one day die. Uh, in fact, we only enjoy these uh, physical blessings for 70, 80, 90 years or so at most, which really, when you think about it, our lifespan is just a drop, it's, it's less than a drop of water in the ocean of eternity. But to be blessed in the heavenly realms means that our riches are spiritual. It means that if we are Christians, then we are in intimate relationship with the one who owns a whole lot more than 300 companies or a Greek island or two. We are in intimate relationship with the one who, who owns the entire universe. Now, I don't know about you, I think it's not a bad position for us to be in, is it? That's a good position to be in. But how did we come to be so privileged? Well, for the teenage billionaire, uh, for her it simply meant being, it was genetics, she was just born into a wealthy family. But how did we become part of God's family? Paul tells us in just two words. Have a look at verse 5. In verse 5, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Now, of course, when you adopt someone, you take someone who is not your child and you make them your child. You welcome them into your family and as an adopted child, an adopted son or daughter, they're not just guests. They're not just coming over for a sleepover. As an adopted child, they have the full rights and the full privileges of membership of the family. That's adoption. What about us? Well, because of our sin, we were out of relationship with God. We were not members of God's family. And yet, what has he done? He's welcomed us in. That's adoption. The second word explains how this adoption has occurred. We see it in verse 7. Uh, in verse 7, it reads, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now, there is a few majestic words in there that I'd love to explain more, but the one I've got in my mind is the word redemption. What does it mean to redeem something? What does it mean to redeem someone? Now, that is something which Paul's readers in Ephesus would have understood because slavery was very common in the Roman Empire. Uh, Rome itself was a slave society, which meant that it had a certain percentage of its population that was slaves. It was actually dependent 
upon slavery for its economy and for its wealth and for its society. It was a slave. Slavery was so common in the Roman Empire. In fact, in the little church in Ephesus, uh, there were in the congregation some people who were slaves. There were in the congregation some people who were owners of slaves in the same church. And we're going to read, we're going to study later on uh, how those relationships worked out. The in, it's an interesting situation, isn't it? That the being one in Christ meant that slaves and slave owners were actually part of the same family. So it was a slave society. And, but sometimes a person who is a free person may actually want to uh, help a family member or someone who they care for out of slavery. And they would do that by redeeming that person. They would have to pay a purchase price and the purchase price would mean that the person was free from their slavery, the slave master no longer had control over them. Now, friends, why this is relevant is that the Bible teaches us that in our natural state we are all slaves. We are slaves to sin. We think that we're free. People living without Christ think that they're living in freedom. But the Bible say, would say that the only freedom that we're living in without Christ is the freedom to not live for God, to the freedom to be living for ourselves, which is not a great state to be in. Without Christ, we don't live for God. We are in bondage to the evil one, which means that the evil one has got us exactly where he wants us, destined for hell. So what has God done? He's redeemed us. And he's done so by paying a price. And what was that price? Well, in verse 7. Have a look at verse 7. In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. That is, by Christ's death on the cross, God has redeemed us out of slavery, out of our slavery to sin and its hellish consequences. But God didn't just redeem us in order for us to fend for ourselves. No, having redeemed us, what has he also done? He has also adopted us as members of his family so that we no longer have to hide from the God of the universe. Instead, we can actually call him Father. Now, there's a great passage that talks about that in another letter that Paul wrote to another church, which was in that same part of the world, and that is to the church in Galatia. Can you flip back just one page? That's easy to do, isn't it? Just one page. And have a look at Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 3. Paul, writing to the Galatian church, says, So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So we are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. 
Now, Paul is addressing a different issue there in Galatia. It's the uh, distinction between law and, and grace. But the fundamental truths here are the same uh, as what he's been saying elsewhere. Uh, what has God done for us? Well, by nature, we were objects of wrath and now we are heirs of heaven. And we can call God Father. In fact, Paul uses a different word there for Father, doesn't he? He uses the word Abba. Now, is he talking about a Swedish pop band from the 1970s that keep on getting recycled? <laughs> no. <clears throat> I watched Eurovision last week and remember those days. <laughs> okay, no, uh, Abba is an, uh, an Aramaic word. Aramaic was the language that Jesus spoke. It was the language that the Jews had brought back with them from Babylon. And uh, uh, Abba uh, means father, but it's not father in that sort of austere way that we might address someone if there's a bit of a relational disconnect in a formal, a very formal situation where a child refers to their father as father. It's more like dad. There's a warmth, there's, a, there's an affection uh, that's, that's, that's bound up in that particular word. We can call the God of the universe dad. We were not members of his family but he has redeemed us. He has adopted us. And now he's actually made us heirs because we have the full rights as sons and daughters. It's great, isn't it? It's terrific. Do you ever wonder, by the way, why God would do that for you? I mean, why would God do that for me in particular as opposed to somebody else? Why specifically me. Well, go back to Ephesians 1 and have a look at verse 4. In verse 4, in verse 4, Paul says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely given us in the one he loves. You see, the issue is, why is it that uh, you and I, if we are Christians, that we are people who have listened to, we have understood, we have believed, we have embraced the good news about Jesus, when others who've also heard the good news about Jesus have not listened, have not believed, have not embraced. Why is it that two people, even pe people growing up in the same family, under the same circumstances, with the same opportunities, can both hear the gospel and one says, I love it, this is what I want, and the other one says, no, not for me, thanks. Why is it like that? Do you ever wonder? I mean, what about yourself? Was there, was there something particularly good about you? Was there something a bit more spiritual about you? Uh, were you smart enough or that, that you should be the one who should accept the gospel when so many people uh, don't? Is there something about you personally? Well, not uh, according to the Bible. Um, take a look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, As for you... You were actually dead 
in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Uh, what did the Ephesian Christians used to be? What was their status? They were dead. Thanks, Catherine. They were dead. They were spiritually dead. And when you're dead, friends, you're dead. <laughs> what I mean by that is when you're dead, you can't respond. You, a, a dead person can't, cannot bring themselves back to life. There is an exception to that, of course. <laughs> but you see, <clears throat> who was it who made them alive? Well, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, and another church in the area, uh, Paul says to the Colossian Christians, he said, you were dead, but you have been made alive by God. You see, they didn't choose God. It was God who first chose them. Um, when we become Christians, I mean, some of us have been brought up in Christian households, Christian families where we've been taught about the Lord since you know, uh, the, the beginning of life, and we just grow up knowing him as our Lord and Saviour and our friend. Some of us become Christians later in life, and God uses different ways for that to happen, but most commonly it's because we hear the gospel explained by someone, we listen to it, we think about it, we work out, does this make sense? Does it fit with my understanding of the world, of God and of myself? And we make a decision as to whether or not we're going to make it our own. Right? That's kind of how it tends to happen. We use our brains. We use our ears. But later on when we look back, we realise that the only reason why that actually happened was because God had performed surgery on our hearts. That God, by his Holy Spirit, had actually entered into our lives and that he was using our faculties to bring about that decision. And what that means, of course, is that God chose us so that we chose him. And that uh, is <coughs> the, uh, the concept. Uh, that concept teaches us that we were dead and God is in charge. And it is God who is sovereign. Think about the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian. Was Paul any more godly than the... Uh, than, than Judas? Was Paul any more godly that, than Pilate, you know, when he washed his hands, <clears throat> said, no, nah, I'm not taking the blame for this, I'm not going to do anything about it either. Was Paul any more godly than the Jews who, having listened to Stephen, the disciple, um, preaching from God's word, picked up rocks and stoned him to death? Was Paul any more godly than them before he became a Christian? No. Uh, in fact, in Acts chapter 8, Paul was cheering them on. In Acts chapter 8, Paul was looking after their clothes. In Acts chapter 8, Paul, we're told, gave approval for the stoning of Stephen, a disciple of Christ, before Paul himself embarked on a campaign to find every Christian he could lay his hands on, <clears throat> have him arrested, thrown in prison, and if necessary, killed. That's how responsive Paul was to the gospel. 
But what did God do for Paul? Well, he, on the Damascus Road, he reached into his heart by his spirit and he made Paul his child. That's what God does. It's God's work. It's God's decision. By the way, how does that make you feel? I guess for me, it makes me feel thankful. Uh, it also makes me feel hopeful for those whom I love who don't yet know the Lord. Thankful and hopeful. And friends, in verse 4, God's decision has been made before the creation of the world. Um, God's just not making this up as he goes along. God has a plan that has been in his mind since the before creation. It is a plan uh, that has been an unfolding plan. as the, uh, It's been a mystery that's been unfolding and it's been fulfilled in Christ. And uh, it, it, uh, it, it means that um, God has predestined these things to happen and he's predestined his own work, his work in our lives as well. What that means is that I can't say that I was the person who was smart enough to respond to the gospel. I can't say I was the person who was good enough to trust in Jesus. I can't say that I was the person who was wise enough to know that this was the right thing to do as opposed to the next person who says, no, I'm not having anything to do with it. It's not about us. It's about God and what he does in our lives. Indeed, in verse 6, it means simply that we praise God for his glorious grace. And in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. And why? So that no man may boast. No one can boast. No one can say that there was something about me that contributed. So we have a tremendous wealth which we don't deserve. Um, when Athena Onassis Roussel turned 18, the newspapers actually got it wrong about all of her inheritance. It turned out that once the accountants and the lawyers got to work, that she only received part of it. Don't trust accountants and lawyers, friends. The rest of it was tied up in a... Look, I was an accountant, I can say that, okay? <clears throat> the rest... Don't want to offend any accountants and lawyers in the congregation. The rest of, the rest of her inheritance was tied up in a, in a foundation which Aristotle Anassus had set up in memory of his son who had died and Athena would not get control of that until she turned 21. Friends, we haven't received all of our inheritances yet, have we? Uh, the Christian life is a strange mix of blessings and struggles and that is because we live as God's sons and daughters but we live in a world which doesn't love him. We live in a world which is fallen. We live in a world which is suffering from the consequences of the fall. And so we are subject to trials, frustrations and temptations but these things will not last. God has a plan for our world. And when Jesus returns in judgment, 
he will put an end to sin and to suffering. So in verses 9 and 10, we see there that the, the mystery that's been unfolding through his revelation through scripture, the mystery has finally been revealed and the mystery is fulfilled in Christ and it tells us that one day when God wraps it all up, it will be wrapped up under the headship of Jesus, that we will all live under the headship of Christ. Now how do we know that that's true? How can we be sure? In the ancient world, when a king put a promise in writing, he would seal that document with his own personal wax seal. That was his guarantee. It's a bit like um, when we promise to buy a house. We put down a deposit, uh, which is our sure sign of our good faith, that the rest of the money is going to come. We'll have a look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. Picking up in the second part of verse 13, where Paul says, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is God's seal, Uh, he is God's deposit. If you are someone who has trusted in Jesus, then that is because God, by his spirit, has entered into your life, has reached into your life, and has changed your heart by the message of the gospel. And so you've been redeemed. You've been adopted. You've been guaranteed. God has predestined that since before creation. It means that you too have a great inheritance. Do you feel rich? Sometimes the Christian life can be a little bit ho-hum. It can seem a little bit ordinary. We don't always feel like we're heirs. Especially when the world tells us that the true riches are the things that you can touch and smell and see. Or when some preachers tell you something a little bit like that as well. Um, there's, you know, there's a popular book which is called Your Best Life Now. Your Best Life Now. Someone was saying to me last <coughs> week over morning tea that when he's talking to non-Christians, uh, he says to them that this is as good as it gets. But talking to Christians, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. I want people to be Christians. Paul tells us that the best is yet to come when all things are gathered under the headship of Christ. Others say that if you want the truly fulfilling Christian life, then you actually do need the extra spiritual blessings, the new and the fresh touch, the new thing that God is doing which is actually different to the gospel. But remember where we started, verse 3. 
Let's have a look at it again. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly, heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. How many spiritual blessings? Every spiritual. What are we missing out on? Nothing. Because we are in Christ Jesus. Could there be anything better than that? Could there be anything better than to be adopted uh, as a child of God and to be an heir of, of heaven? Could there be anything better than that? If you have Christ, then you've got it all. And so when we're feeling a bit tired, when we're feeling a bit down, when we're feeling even a bit flat uh, in our Christian life, what we need is not an extra blessing. What we need is to prayerfully refresh ourselves and to remember the great blessings that we already have, the great blessings that we have in Jesus. The deposit has been put down. The inheritance is a certainty. Can there be anything better than that, friends? Let's pray about it. Father, we want to thank you that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Father, we uh, acknowledge that sometimes uh, we are not grateful for that because we're not as mindful of that as we need to be. Father, we pray that we would resist the temptation to try to find satisfaction and fulfilment in things which are passing or things which add uh, something different to the work of Christ. Help us to have a, a richer and a deeper appreciation and a grasp of who he is and of what he's done for us and to have an understanding of our status with you that we can call you Abba, Father. Father, help us to have lives that are shaped by our status and by our inheritance that we would be living for that, looking forward to that and we would be doing so to the praise, not of ourselves, but to the praise of your glorious grace that you have shown so freely as you have given us your spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.